Welcome to the Independent Idaho Podcast, a production of the Living Independence Network Corporation, or LINK. My name is Jeremy Maxand, and I am the Executive Director of LINK, as well as the host of the show. LINK is a regional center for independent living, and our mission is simple, to empower Idahoans with disabilities across the lifespan to live the life of our choosing. You can learn more about LINK at linkidaho.org. Our show today focuses on the class action lawsuit over the Idaho Medicaid program for adults with developmental disabilities. Our guests are Richie Epping, one of the plaintiff's attorneys in the lawsuit, Delray Warner, the mother of Kyle Warner, who is a plaintiff in the lawsuit, and Noel Garcia, a self-advocate and consumer of Medicaid services in Idaho. Let's get into it. Uh, Richie, Delray, and Noel, welcome to the Independent Idaho podcast. Thank you for taking some time today to uh, share with folks who tune into this podcast some information about um, a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit in Idaho that impacts folks who might have developmental disabilities or access the developmental disability uh, waiver through Medicaid. And we're going to get into all that, but I first wanted just to to welcome all of you and just let you know how appreciative I am that you're going to take some time to talk uh, to talk with folks who tune into the Independent Idaho podcast. Thanks, Jeremy, for having all of us. Thank you. I appreciate you allowing us to have this platform. Thanks, Jeremy. You bet. The thanks is is all mine. And. Before we get into this, and there's a lot to talk about, um, a lot of it's complicated, but a lot of it actually is pretty simple um, when you get down to it and what what this means for people and their lives. Uh, Before we get into that, I want to give the folks on this episode a chance to introduce themselves and share with all of you uh, tuning in who, who they are why they're on this Zoom, why they're on this podcast interview, kind of what their connection is to this issue, the lawsuit, the services, um, and how it impacts their their lives. Um, these are just a few voices in the state of Idaho, but I think these voices probably represent um, a lot of folks around the state struggling with with services um, that help people keep uh, help people stay free and independent in their communities and in their homes. Um, I think let's start. Richie, do you want to go ahead and um, kick us off and let folks know who you are and what you're all about and how you got involved with this? Sure. My name is Richie Epping. I'm a lawyer in Boise, and uh, I work uh, with um, the American Civil Liberties Union of Idaho, the ACLU, on a case called KW versus Armstrong, which we're gonna talk about today. Uh, That case has to do with the Medicaid program in Idaho for adults with developmental disabilities. 
And I got involved in that uh, 12 years ago now in 2011, when a number of, of people, including Del Rey, who's with us today, um, reached out to me asking for help when their budgets had been cut in that program. And what came out of that was a lawsuit. Uh, and that lawsuit has had a long story um, for Idaho and for the Medicaid program here and for the adults that are part of that program. And it's still going on today. And I'm still involved um, through the ACLU of Idaho. I also now um, helped start a uh, nonprofit sliding scale community-based law firm in, in Boise called Rest Collective, W-R-E-S-T. Um, but my work on the KW case continues through the ACLU of Idaho. Super. And let's go down to Del Rey. Hi, my name is Del Rey Warner, and I am the mother of Kyle Warner, who is the lead plaintiff on KW versus Armstrong. And um, we live here in northern Idaho in a little rural, rural community, Deary. And um, yes, we've been blessed to be on this court case because um, for our for us, this has been the only thing that has allowed for Kyle to be able to be in his own community. It uh, he requires twenty four hour care, and so um, this this has been a blessing for us. But <laughs> there's always a but, right? <laughs> um, there's the when the budget tool was flawed, you know, we we were we that's like Richie was explaining. Our reason for uh, for the whole court case was because the budget tool was not transparent and it would it would change from year to year. And so people never knew what they were like. Some people would turn in their budget and um, they whatever the formula that was being used would give somebody else $20,000 more a year that they weren't even asking for, but it would give somebody else that needed it. It was cutting their budget by could be 20,000, could be 30,000. One year for Kyle, I think it was 33,000. That's a lot of, that's a lot of budget cut. <laughs> and so, um, you know, every, everybody was getting pretty discouraged about why this was happening. And, and um, thank goodness for Richie and the team at the ACLU, James and Marty, all of them, you know, we just, uh, this has been a blessing for us, but it, it's also, as we get into talking about this today, it, it's, it's also, it's, you know, we're, we're in this 11 years, we're in this court case 11 years, and now we're kind of back at square one. So I'm going to let, I'll let Noel speak, but that I, I probably went too far past my uh, introduction. No, <laughs> that's, who I was. <laughs> that's, that's fine. And, and that was great. And, and maybe you could just talk a little bit before we move to Noel about uh, Kyle and like, Paint a little picture for us because we're, we're going to talk about the KW lawsuit and that's Kyle. 
right and he's not he won't be on this this interview right. but it would be great to let uh folks tune People in from. a little bit yeah so kyle's uh 41 years old um he had meningitis at the age of five months and it left him severely brain damaged with a uh a seizure disorder so we have between 50 to 100 seizures a day and um cognitively he's like seven to 18 months old but he can he can walk he can see he can hear um he's just nonverbal, and so he um he's a blessing to us and he humbles us every day but yeah without these services you know we we couldn't i we could we just couldn't do it on our own. You know, it, we just, there's no way, um, cause there are just times when a 24 hour stint with Kyle is, is a lot. I mean, most of we have 24 hour care with him and, uh, everybody, you know, some people work a 12 hour shift. Some people work an eight hour shift. Some people work a four hour shift. <laughs> you know, or we have others that, that work a longer shift, but it, it definitely is, um, we need help. You know, this is not something that we could do on our own and keep Kyle safe and give him any kind of normalcy of life. So. One, one last question for me on that. All right. How long you have you been in Deer? All of our lives. All of <laughs> been in dairy all, I've been in dairy all my life, and and um, so my and my husband um was a logger. He's retired now, but he was a sawyer, and um, yeah, we we've been in dairy, and actually, the school system really was phenomenal for Kyle, and uh, Kyle was able to go to school here till he was fifteen. And then we kind of tapped out on all of our resources and there was nothing in our area for Kyle, not even Moscow. Um, and when he was little, when Kyle was little, we went to the DD program at the University of Idaho. So from the time he was oh, eight months old until the time he was four, when he could start in the school system here, we, we went to the uh, U of I for like four days a week, we would take him in, into uh, the University of Idaho and into their DD program. So um, just trying to offer him his best life, you know, and, um, and truly Kyle being in his own community around people that he knows and is familiar with, um, it is, I can't tell you what it means. It's it's such a blessing to him. Uh, there were times when, you know, the state said, well, he needs to go to Ish. We just need to, you know, Kyle yeah. needs to be in the Idaho State School and Hospital, which has been dissolved now. But there were times when, and it was just like, well, why, why would we take Kyle away from everybody that's familiar to him and and his family and take him you know, seven hours away from anybody that he would know. Um, it just didn't, didn't make sense to us. So um, that's Kyle's 
when he got sick with meningitis, they said he'd never walk, talk, see, or hear. So I feel very blessed that he ha can do everything but talk. And he, um, he does communicate in ways that you understand. I mean, he's, he just, he has a way of communicating with you. You have to be around him and get used to him a little bit, but he definitely, uh, let you know his wants and needs <laughs> so well and you you mentioned how good it is for him to be in in his community with people who are familiar i also you know i as you know i'm also from a small town a logging town in a very, okay. a very rural area and and i you know the the i would you know the impact that kyle has on the community also it's i true. think it's like probably pretty important it's true, um, you know, very true. And I mean, there's still classmates that he went to school with. We had to fight because um, their dairy um, actually used to be White Pine School District included Beauville, Deary, and Troy. And we're uh, Beauville is 10 miles east of us and Troy is 10 miles west of us. But Deary and Beauville were consolidated, but Troy had their own K through 12. And um, the special ed classroom and the self, well, it was back then it was self-contained. The self-contained classroom was in Troy. And so they wanted us to send Kyle to Troy. And it was like, well, what good is it going to do to send Kyle to Troy if he can't, you know, if he's not going to be around our other kids as, by, with his siblings' friends? Because then when, his, they're, when they come, to our house they're not used to kyle and they're afraid of him well and the, and it, it's just the opposite when you integrate them in mm -hmm. and we knew kyle could be disruptive in a classroom and whatnot so he had one-on-one -on -one training during um when kids really needed that other time to learn but like during music and during pe and during some of those uh, library you know for a movie Kyle was integrated with them. And I have to tell one cute little story. Kyle, um, our kids always had flat tops when they were growing up. And there was um, one little boy that always used to sit behind Kyle. And he'd, he'd watch that show, but it was just like a blankie for him. He'd, he'd just rub the top of Kyle's head like this and just watch the movie. And, and Kyle let him. <laughs> Kyle didn't care. You know, he let him. But it just to this day we we ran into uh that young man the other day you know not that long ago but so many of the kids that went to school with Kyle always come up and ask how's Kyle doing you know like ones that haven't been around they've moved away moved for you know moved on and moved out of the, the small community and and have, but they'll come back home for certain events and and that a lot of them always ask how Kyle's doing it's really endearing to me that's how i know that that was the, the right thing to do, you know, that, that, that meant something to them. It gave them a broader understanding of somebody with a disability. It taught them compassion and that it's okay to, that we're not all alike and that we, and that we need to be here to help one another as well. Thank you for that. That was, that was great. Um, I, Thank you for painting a picture of who Kyle is and what he means to the community and your family. That's that's great. Um, Noel, Noel Garcia. Yes. 
who who is Noel Garcia and where are you at and and why are you on this podcast episode? Uh, I kind of feel you you asked me more than one question all combined. Uh, so I'm not sure uh, where you want me to start, but I'm on this podcast. Well, first of all, I didn't even know about this podcast until Richie asked me if I was either willing or I wanted to participate. And of course, I said yes, because why not? Um, but um, let's see, I've done, I've sat on a behavior committee out at the Napa State School. I've been in all kinds of different realms, everything from eight bed facility group homes to uh, in an apartment with 24 hour care to certified family homes to, so I felt like it was more than appropriate for me to be on this podcast because I've seen everything from self-direction to what they call traditional services to eight bed facility group homes to watching people go into behaviors in the group homes and staff laying on top of them. Um, so I don't know. I think I've I've seen a, a lot of different realms of how people are supposedly getting care. Noel, where where are you from originally and, and where are you living now? Um, I'm currently in Caldwell, Idaho. However, I was raised in a small town called Buell, Idaho. Uh, my dad's side of the family, however, is from a small town called Wells, Nevada. And my mom's side of the family lives in Jerome and Magic Valley. Buell, that is a cute little town. Yeah. My, my family and Buell are big are beekeepers. Oh, beekeepers. Wow. Yeah. That's excellent. So you are you are a you're a consumer of home and community-based services. Yes. And and what is what does that mean to you? The you know, we toss this term around home and community-based services, and and sometimes I don't think people think about what that actually means, what the whole point of those services is. Can you talk a little bit about what those services should mean or mean to you? Um again, I'm not sure how to paint this picture, but uh, home and community-based services should be, in my mind at least, to at least keep people inde independent in whatever environment they choose to live in um, or whatever environment, I guess, makes them happy and they think they get the highest quality of life and care. But um, I think a lot of times you get wrapped in with the staff from whatever facility. And like I was saying earlier, when we were talking before we came on the air, um, I think a, a lot of providers who deliver that level of care are, are more concerned about, at least in my opinion, about what the Medicaid rates look like instead of what does everyday life look like for Noel and what would it take to keep Noel 
living independently and happy in whatever community he chooses to live in. So I don't know if that answered that question. I don't think we could have a better answer to that question, actually. I was hearing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness kind of coming through my head while you were talking about that and how important all that is. I mean, you kind of nailed it, Noel. Right, because in my mind, I'm the happiest when I have a beer in one hand and a fishing pole in the other, but either because of Medicaid rates or people finding it too difficult to, I don't know, maybe load me in a car or whatever, a lot of times I end up having what people label me as having so-called behaviors because I'm a very outdoorsy person. And when I feel like the walls are caving in, I don't do well with that. And that kind of affects my anxiety. And so when you talk about, you know, what does care look like for people? I, I don't even think that picture's being painted accurately in community community now because everybody spends a lot of time talking about Medicaid rates instead of what does it take to keep individuals happy in their community. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Well, Noel, thanks for sharing that. We're going to circle yeah. over to Richie. Um, and actually, you know, now we talked about, you know, before we got on the air, we talked about um, the importance to kind of paint a broad picture for people tuning in about about what home and community-based services are. But, you know, I'm, honestly, I'm just realizing that we actually need to take a much further step back and paint the picture of what life has historically been like for people with disabilities um you know in the world and and in the united states and and it looked essentially like kind of locking people up in institutions for a long time and not giving them any choice or freedom and and just storing people away uh who 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 had no quality of life and no purpose um and that doesn't seem right or fair and and so home and community-based services was a response in part to solving that problem of like how do we get people out of institutions where they're locked up essentially in, in a jail and get them into their homes and their communities where they can live uh whatever life they choose and so i you know richie i don't know if you want to talk any more about that but really that's the issue here is that we have a history of imprisoning people with disabilities uh, and not valuing their lives at all and this whole system that we're fighting for is to make sure that we're recognizing people's value and that they're able to live um, whatever life they choose, because that's what we do in the United States of America, um, is we get to choose, we get to live our own free independent lives. So yeah, we should have started there, but, um, picking it up there. Do you want to, do you want to comment on that, Richie, and maybe set the stage for what's going on with the lawsuit? Sure. I think, I mean, yeah, that's, that's always important to, to remind ourselves, those who know, and to tell tell the world, those who don't, that 
we're um, part of a long uh, struggle in history to make um, the world accessible and integrated and so we all can live together in it. And uh, it wasn't truly that long ago at all when the default was to um, lock people up who had developmental disabilities and other disabilities um, and to warehouse them in institutions. Uh, and it was only through the determined and persistent struggle of activists and disability rights advocates that we even have state-based systems of community-based and home-based services like we're talking about in the KW versus Armstrong lawsuit. Uh, and that lawsuit itself is just a small part of this movement around the world, around the United States, and across Idaho um, for fairness and human rights and humanity and accessibility and independence for all of the people that we're talking about um, today who are uh, part of this part of this lawsuit. Um, and even though we are making it past the world where the default was to institutionalize and incarcerate and warehouse people, um, we still are part, we still have to struggle here um, to get um, fair treatment. And what uh, this lawsuit started as is just the basic fairness of tell us how you're making decisions about us, uh, which the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare, Idaho Medicaid system didn't want to do in 2011 um, when the case started. And, and at that time, I knew very little about any of the things that we're talking about today. And I, I've learned them alongside people like Del Rey and Noel over the years um, because they know best. Um, uh, Kyle and Delray and Noel and others who are in this program know best what they need, uh, but they don't often get to decide how these systems work. Thanks for that. I think I think we should, Delray, if you're willing, I think for folks who might not understand exactly what the services do and how you get on them um, and, and, and this question about the budget. Um, maybe if you're willing to paint a picture for us of, of, of what it's like as a, as, a, as a family member with, a, with an adult son who has a, a disability and, and, and how do you manage all of that? You talked about caregivers, you talked about the budget. What, what's really the nuts and the bolts here? Um, that then led to this this issue that turned into a lawsuit. Like most folks don't know the process of establishing a budget or getting services and what those services even do. Maybe you can describe that. Well, for us, I, we were very blessed because just um, when Kyle got sick, um, Alvin Frostad was Kyle's pediatrician and from the time we come home from the hospital with him, because Kyle was in Spokane for like three weeks teetering, you know. And then when we come home, Dr. Frostad said, you know, the, I mean, they said he'd never walk, talk, see, or hear. And 
Dr. Frostad said, are you going to put him in an institution? And I said, no. And he said, okay, well then if you're going to take care of this little guy, we're going to just make sure he gets everything he needs. So for us, it started with our doctor. And I, I have to just say something about Dr. Frostad that really, he not only helped us like find the things that Kyle needed, the services that Kyle needed, but he really, um, he really taught me how to be an advocate for Kyle as far as, uh, you know, a parent, not just for him, for him learning and, and that, but also doctoring for him. Because even for Kyle, as far as his health, I'm the one mainstay that he's had that whole time. You know, he's 41 years old and I'm the history of, as long as my brain still works, <laughs> I'm the history of all of that. And, and Dr. Frostad really taught me, I mean, when we would make a decision, um, he, he had such a great uh, vision with Kyle. And he said, you, you know, Kyle's not textbook. And if you're going to, if you're going to try and parent him, doctor him, you know, medically treat him or, or provide services for him, you're going to start at the back of the book and work your way forward and you're going to rewrite the chapters. <laughs> and it was just really, uh, just really ingrained in me how, at least how to kind of move forward. And um, so that was, that was our first introduction to services. And then kind of once we got into services and, you know, then you get more connections kind of as you get in, you get more connections. So for us, for Kyle, it was through his, his doctor, his pediatrician. And so that there would be a ref, referral to, to, to Medicaid, essentially, yep. to you, uh, you would say, hey, I think I have uh, an individual who needs services and might qualify. And, yep. then, and then the the state would evaluate or assess the situation somehow and determine yes or no. And if yep. yes, if, if yes, then then the question then becomes, well, what kind of support do we actually get? What's that support look like? How many resources are there? How much money is behind it? And I think that's that's the step we find ourselves in now is that every individual has a different determination of what they need and what Correct. and what money gets put behind that need. And this became the crux of the lawsuit was that there was a problem in determining those budgets for individuals. You you cannot put individuals in a box you can't even put us in a box you couldn't put jeremy and richie and noel and del rey all you know there's just so many gray areas you can't put people in boxes and so it is hard i i do understand that trying budget tools is hard but there needs to be exclusions you know like to try and customize it and when we started working on this court case, I, Richie and I talked a little bit about this yesterday. You know, all of us have had a lot of input when we were working with the state. 
And you have to, when you're thinking about it, you have to kind of think of somebody who is in the least need and the most need. So it's really a broad spectrum, you know, and then, and you're thinking of the people and their needs. And on, and truly when, when we were working on this, truly I was, I, I wanted it to be, so it protected the participant, you know, it protected Kyle, the, the new budget tool would protect Kyle, but I also wanted it to protect the state too, so that the state wouldn't fraudulently get, you know, people weren't abusing it as well. It was being used properly because, you know, we all know how some of some things get, get abused. And so um, it was hard because we've worked on this and to find extra time, I don't have a lot of extra time. So when you participate in some of that stuff and now where we're at with, with everything, it's a little bit disheartening. Um, I don't know. I'll let, I'll let Noel speak now because he, you know, he has a different perspective on it than what I do, but, um, but these are the most vulnerable that we're trying to take care of in the state and every they people were falling through the cracks and it wasn't just one i mean for our family kyle was the one that needed the services but the family needs the services too because you it it benefits a whole group of it benefits a whole family because mom and dad can't do it all and the siblings can't do it all and and mom and dad want to support their other kids as well as supporting Kyle, you know? So it's, it's you big. Mentioned, you mentioned that your husband was a Sawyer. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, for those of you who don't know what a Sawyer is, uh, <laughs> I, I suspect they're the individuals cutting the timber. Yes. In the sawmill. Okay. Um, very intense, very dangerous job. Very um, Kelly and, was sick. Telly was 63. Wow, that's, yeah. That's a, that's a lot. That's, um, he's amazing. We'll just say that. We'll just get that out of the way. He's amazing. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> and, and, and so obviously he was working during this, uh, time. And were you working as well? Or were you at, at home most of the time, um, providing some care? When Kyle was young, because we didn't have as many services when he was young, I didn't. I, I, I did a few things that just um, where I could kind of work around school. I did daycare. I did, I cleaned houses for people. I worked for the post office. Um, I had, and I've had really great jobs, but I have had to have my career has went around. Mm -hmm. Oops, sorry about that. There was Kyle's, that's time for meds. <laughs> Um, anyway, um, yeah, I, you know, for me, I did give up a career to, to be at home with Kyle. I mean, my career centered around what I could do with Kyle and that, that was okay. You yeah. know, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back and change any of that. And one of the things that the, that having Kyle on the DD waiver, having 24 hour care. Uh, I was working at WSU, Greg was working in the woods and Kyle was in Deary. 
And so uh, we ended up buying a business in Deary. <laughs> and that that was quite an adventure. <laughs> and the, the court case happened kind of during this time. And that was that was a whole nother thing. But we could have never bought that business. It was a bar restaurant. We, we would have never been able to do that had um, Kyle not have, you know, if Kyle didn't have services. And like I said, we, we couldn't do it anyway. If, if we were, if we were trying to provide every, everything Kyle needed, we couldn't, we couldn't keep him safe. We couldn't, we couldn't provide everything that he needed. If we were, if we had, were providing his 24 hour care all the time, there's just no way this way he's two blocks down you know he he has his own play he has his own house he's he's up two blocks away and um you know it it's wonderful he has he has his best life right now you know um his health has declined a lot and every year we kind of have things that change up and down but um, we're very, very blessed with the caregivers that we have. Um, everyone loves him. That's kind of a requirement, you know, <laughs> as a parent, you want, you want the caregivers to care about him in that way. And so, um, so we are blessed, but, but it needs to work. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're okay right now but there have been times and there's been times throughout the the case that it's very stressful on was stressful on our family and, and stressful for other families i know it was we are a little bit um you know there's not another kyle and deary mm -hmm. you know so we're being rural you're not you don't know as many people and you're not as in many programs and kind of have that that sense of community a little bit because you're you're too far away from it but um being able to have that here has meant everything to Kyle I mean he you know he can watch homecoming parades and you know he he can just attend to a lot of the small things here in our community that he wouldn't be um, suited to be able to do in another area. Yeah, small towns are great. They, they have a whole different piece of life. You know, the relationships are a lot stronger and tend to be deeper. Um, that sense of place and belonging is is a lot different than it is in an urban urban center in a big city it is yeah. definitely a, a a special place to live your life yeah for sure and it's fortunate that people get to that it's fortunate you can get the services in dairy to do that too so i hear that we we hear about direct care issues all over the state and the crisis with the direct care workforce and all of these issues and even in places where there's a lot of workers there's not a lot of direct care um, no. and the quality that you get probably isn't going to be as high as it needs to be. So that's, that's good to hear. Yeah. You've got an 18 year old sleeping on your couch. No, um, 
why don't you share a little bit about what it's like since since you receive services and you are independent because of those services uh, maybe share a little bit about what it's like to 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 deal with and manage your budget and and how often do you have to think about your budget and and um, those sorts of things like we're talking kind of about the DD waiver and budgets. Um, what do you think about that? I'm not sure exactly where you want me to go. Um, are you asking if I like how the budgets are? What is it you want me to respond to? Well, as somebody, if, if you're receiving services, and so you've got um, you've got a budget. Um, that you've got to work with. And so how do you determine how you use that budget? How do you figure out where that money goes? Um, um, what What is that process like for you individually? Um, well, for me, I feel like, I, I mean, I've had a lot of support over the years. Like I feel, I, I've had, a lot of good case managers and a lot of good various advocates that have been willing to help me navigate that. Um, and, and so from that aspect of self-direction, I like the fact that, you know, you sat down with a support broker or I guess whoever the individual wants at the table to say, okay, let's paint a picture of, of how Noel chooses to live his life. So from that aspect, I do like the self-direction concept of, okay, so uh, Noel wants to live in a one-bedroom apartment, receive 12 hours of care a day. However, that also means that, you know, from a budget aspect, you have money in these different categories so okay uh you need this much money maybe for public transportation this much money for fort boise or whatever but we also get to decide the the wage we want to pay the caregiver so from that aspect i do i do think they do a good job of supporting independence and and so part of Richie, maybe you can go into a little more detail about this. Um, Noel and Del Rey have given us a sense of how important these budgets are and and some of the things they're used for. Um, but how at the end of the day, why what's the crux of the lawsuit? And um, what were what are you trying? What are, what are you, what were you? What are you still twelve years later? trying to fix in this system and maybe you can specifically talk about um some of the transparency issues you know budgets are are developed using formulas and calculations and and those things are determined through you know uh, talking to noel and figuring out what what noel can do what noel needs support with um and then and then you know how do you close that support gap with a budget and if if how the how those budgets are determined and, and those calculations are made or are done in in secret um 
that might be a problem. And it's certainly a problem for people who uh, are it's trying not to- not maybe a problem, it is a problem. Yeah, it, it is a problem. <laughs> it is a problem. And Richie, maybe you can talk about that and explain why it's a problem and, and what's going on with this lawsuit today. Yeah, sure. So yes, that's that's uh, definitely where this started. Is the Idaho Medicaid program was using a tool to decide what people's individual budgets would be—the amount of money that Kyle has, the amount of money that Noel has available to pay service providers. Uh, they don't, you know, Kyle and Noel don't see that money. It's just the money that they can use to. Um, to make sure that they have the supports and services they need to live in the home and community, live in their home and live in their community. Um, and the, the formula, the system that Idaho Medicaid was using to do that, they wouldn't share with anybody that they were using it to make decisions about. And uh, that's where the case started. People came to me and said, you know, our budgets just dropped and they won't tell us why. I was naive enough to send a letter to the uh, Department of Health and Welfare in Idaho and say, hey, um, all these people have come to me. Can you send me your formulas? And they said, no. And they wrote back and said, no, it's a secret. And so we we that's where the case started. Uh, went to court and said to the judge, this is just not fair. It's not constitutional to, to tell people uh, make decisions about people and not explain to them how those decisions came to be. And so early on in the case, we got the court to order that the Medicaid program give us those formulas. Uh, we then were able to look at those formulas. We had to hire some experts who um, know how these kind of this kind of uh, system gets put together to look at them. And they came back to us and said, "Wow, this is." terrible. There's huge problems with this uh, system, with this tool they're using to come up with people's budgets. So we went back to the judge and we said, judge, now that, now that we have the formulas, we've looked at them and these formulas are, are making bad decisions for a lot of people. And the judge agreed with us uh, and said, no, this system is, is, is unfair. It's unconstitutional. Um, and in the course of that, we we had to argue again about secrecy because the way that you get from uh, talking to Noel or or talking to Delray and 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 Kyle's family about um, what kind of support they need to a budget number is you have to do an assessment, and the assessment that they were using, the assessment tool that they were using to uh, put. Um, inputs into this budget tool was also a secret. There were parts of it that they didn't want us to see. And so we had to argue to the judge about that. Uh, and the judge uh, agreed with us again and said, no, if, if they're going to be using this to make decisions about people, people have to be able to see the materials that help them challenge their budgets if those budgets are uh, not enough for the services that they need. Um, so that's been a, a, a large part of what the case has been about. And as you mentioned, Jeremy, we're still dealing with this. So after um, we won in front of the judge on all these different issues, the result was that the Idaho Medicaid program had to 
work with people who receive Medicaid to develop a new budget system that is um, has to be a fair system and needs to be a transparent system that doesn't have these kind of secrets. Uh, but then we learned uh, over the last couple of years that when they picked out a new assessment instrument, uh, they picked out another assessment instrument that has secrets that they won't show us. Um, and so now we're in a place where um, we're going to have to, yet again, force Idaho Medicaid to do the fair thing, to follow the United States Constitution, to make sure that people in this program have their civil rights and their human rights uh, so they can build a fair system again. Uh, it's kind of unbelievable to me that we're still battling against this kind of secrecy, but um, uh, until Idaho Medicaid learns its lesson, we'll have to keep keep doing that. Wow. So <laughs> just to put a finer point on it, I mean, you're essentially talking about government secrecy that's resulting in people being kept in institutional settings or other settings that aren't necessarily appropriate or not getting the supports or services they need at the end of the day. That, that seems to be exactly the opposite of what people in Idaho get worked up about or, or is exactly the thing people get worked up about, right? Like inappropriate government activities or secrecy and then infringing on people's ability to be free and independent. Kind of hits the nail right on the head for when it comes to issues in Idaho, doesn't it? Right, yeah. I mean, we're, we're really talking, I mean, this is very basic fairness. Like if I make a decision about you, Jeremy, uh, you have a right to tell me that maybe that decision was wrong. And if you think that decision was wrong, you have a right, especially if I'm the government, to challenge me on it. And to be able to challenge me on it, you have to know how it was made and you have to be able to come in and say, all right, uh, you assessed me this way, but you left this part out or you missed this part. And to be able to do that, you have to know how I did that assessment in the first place, how I came up with that budget number at the end of the day. Um, and that's what we've been fighting for here for over a decade. Okay. So where where are things there has been there has been some activity on the, the lawsuit definitely in the last month or two. Um, some decisions being made by judges and you know the lawyers have been involved and going back and forth, I know. Um, where where are we today? And today is May 9th, 2023. Um, are we back at square one or has any progress? <laughs> Delray says we are back at square one. Um, so we're back at, we're essentially 12 years into this and we're back at square one. Well, we, we, we don't have, I know Medicaid has not uh, produced for us a, a fair budgeting system, which is what their obligation is to do. Um, and we're going to have to force them to do that at this point. And so in that sense, we are at a, a square one, but in another sense, um, the court has vindicated again and again and again in this case um, the rights of people with disabilities in Idaho and their Medicaid program. And so in that sense, we have come a, a long, long way since where we were in 2012. Um, uh, we have federal court order. We have a federal 
a judge-approved federal settlement agreement that means that we have tools to hold Idaho Medicaid accountable. Why it is that uh, we still are arguing uh, with the department and still having to uh, uh, go into court uh, against the Department of Health and Welfare about this, these basic uh, requirements of transparency and due process in this case, I can't answer that question. It's a surprise to me that, that we're still talking about these things. But where we are now is the court, uh, the, the settlement agreement that we have with the department uh, gave them until 2020 to come up with this new system. They missed that deadline. The court then ordered that they have it ready by June of 2022. That's last year. Uh, they missed that deadline. And then now we're in a place where they have yet to bring to us even a transparent assessment instrument to use for this new system. Uh, and so what we're going to have to do now is um, probably have the court um, hold the department accountable yet again in this case. Well, thank goodness you are. Um, this has been quite the haul over the years. I think, I think we're getting close to accomplishing the goal of explaining to folks a little bit about home and community-based services, about the lawsuit, about um, folks who receive these services and what that, what that means. Um, maybe what we can do is close out with some final thoughts. And um, I'd like to start with Del Rey and then go to Noel and then Richie, if you want to close it out. Um, Delray, I'm, I'm just wondering if you, you know, for, for family members, parents, um, folks who might be receiving services, you've been in this for, a, you've been in this for a long time and that not, not counting the lawsuit. Um, um, this has been your life and I'm certain it hasn't always been easy. Uh, clearly you said, and I'm wondering what, thoughts you have for families who might be really struggling with the system, with the services, with the issues that, that the lawsuit is intended to address. Um, it can get really desperate and dire for people in trying to just navigate all of this and just deal with the reality of just life and taking care of loved ones. Um, but you're here and you've been persistent and you've been, you know, successful um you and Kyle and your husband in 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 moving the needle on this issue and I'm just wondering what what you would share with people out there who might be tuning into this who are kind of struggling you know and not sure if this is going to get better right and and it is you know we are kind of in a you know, navigating a different area right now, because before in the lawsuit, we were all kind of protected. And I don't know, moving forward now, where that stands. Um, I'm, you know, but truthfully, I trust um, Richie and James and Marty. I mean, the group there has done so well. We've been blessed. Our family has been blessed with uh, really good support brokers. And I, I do have friends. So I think, I guess, like I said, our doctor pointed us in the right direction. 
you know, when Kyle was younger, but if you, I think some of it is just communication, you know, like, um, going, uh, talk, seeing on Facebook, seeing, you know, like putting messages out there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if you're in a small community, some of it is like even us of those who are already, you know, like for Kyle, who is in the system, when you meet somebody else who you can tell they're struggling and you might not know where, where they're going to fall in that, you know, where they're, what services they're going to be eligible for, but at least I can point them in the right direction. You know, I can, I can give them a contact person. Um, Scott Community Care, Melanie Scott is one of my very best friends. That's how her and I met though, is through Kyle. And so it, um, a lot of that is, you know, if you were a new family and I didn't know you, I don't know exactly who I would tell you to go to at first. I, I mean, I would probably talk to Melanie and try and, and she would point me in the right direction. I could, I can help somebody, you know, get to where they need to go. But if you were just out here, just moving here, or, you know, you've just suffered an illness and you don't know what you're, what possibly that you would, um, would, you know, what you might be eligible for. I, I still think that the doctors can help navigate that some, I don't know, Richie, what's your opinion on that? I mean, I think, I think you're right, Delray. I mean, people should reach out to people that they trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, that often will guide them to others and to broader communities of support. It sounds like community and peer-to-peer connections are really important. Like making, making those networks that people might have suggestions. Well, advice. And when they get in the school system too, the school system kind of is a network in itself. You know what I mean? Because if the school can't provide what you need, then usually they talk to the university. You know what I mean? Like there's, there is a networking system kind of once you get, but, but if it, you know, if you have a newborn and, and it's, you know, they've been diagnosed with something, it's hard to, but I do think, like I said, for, for us, it was our doctor. He, you know, he pointed us in the right direction. I think really, uh, in Moscow, we do have services in Moscow. So most people that are, that would be like, would be from around here would have that connection. You know, that's how that would get started. As far as like parent groups. So when we were growing up, when Kyle was younger, um, there was a group called Families Together. And I don't know if it was down in Southern Idaho or not, but it was, um, this was a group kind of through the university and um, it was at the best Western and it was usually a two day event. And they, it was a thing for the whole family. So they had activities for Kyle's siblings. They had activities for him, but they had um, parent um, just like parent group things that you could go to that would be like planning 
estate planning, you know, I mean, they just had all kinds of stuff, setting up a trust, um, you know, finding services. It was, you know, we really enjoyed that back then. I don't even know if they have anything like that anymore because we've kind of been, you know, we've kind of navigated ourselves through where, where we, you know, we're okay. <laughs> and um, the other thing, like I was telling you, the support broker for on the DD waiver, Kyle's on the independent as well, the self-direction. And um, he, so he has support brokers and I think there is a shortage of support brokers in the state right now, which is really unfortunate, but we have been blessed on that front for us. We, we've had support brokers that were very knowledgeable, that were very, um, just kind of, and was so good about coming out and really spending time with us and getting to know Kyle so that they knew what Kyle's needs were as well. You know, that's, that's one of the, if, if you're on the DD waiver, uh, your support broker is more, I always say this about our support broker. She's more important than the parents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I believe, and I believe it too. <laughs> She's the most important one on our whole team is our support broker. So, wow. um, and we have a good one. So I'm, I'm really grateful. <laughs> Thanks for that. Noel, I think it looks like you might be on mute. Um, if you want to unmute, I would love to hear uh, what your final thoughts are, what your words are to folks um, who might be in a similar situation as you and uh, what advice you might have. Um, well, as I was listening to Del Rey, I'm glad that she's one of the few that's been blessed as far as support brokers, but that's kind of where I have a cry in my tail because I don't feel like support brokers get good enough training. And because of the pandemic, the support broker don't even isn't even required to live in the same town as you. So the only contact I have with my support broker is through phone. And I can't even tell you what town she lives in. So I would like to see, at least from my experience, uh, Medicaid or somebody require that support brokers and both support brokers and caregivers, if you're gonna utilize the self-direction program, get more training on how to, how to work with various disabilities, whether that be cognitive or whatever the disability is. All right. Support broker, um, so many important roles in delivery of these services and just navigating these services and figuring out these services. And um, yeah, the good ones are, are hard to find and hard to keep, I suspect. Um, now, don't, don't get me wrong. I have had good support brokers because I've been on self-direction more than once. But I'm just saying, currently, I can't even tell you where my support broker lives. And I kind of think she knows nothing about me. Uh, she just basically someone I talk to on the phone once in a while. 
and I perceive her as a paper pusher. Well, Richie, do you do you have any final thoughts on all of this? I mean, you have got to have a million thoughts on all of this. Um, Twelve years, many, many, I'm sure, hearings and filings and decisions and. Um, what are you thinking? Where are we going? Well, I, I, the thing that I want to always emphasize, and I'm going to take this opportunity to emphasize it, is, uh, you know, we we have this lawsuit that we've been talking about, and I know that 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 you know it's been our focus for this hour. But what Delray was talking about a, a few moments ago is the most important thing, which is community and connection and doing this together. Um, uh, there are times, and I think this is one of them, where the the system, the state, the law puts in these technical barriers to um, prevent people from getting the things that they need. And I consider myself a technician that kind of helps, can help in the background to navigate those technical barriers, which are are in this instance legal barriers, and and. Um, the difficulty of understanding this tool and my ability to connect um, folks in this program to the resources so we could bring those experts in to analyze what we got once the court ordered that they give us their formulas. Um, but where I've seen changes that last, where I've seen the Medicaid program in Idaho change for the better, it has been less because of this lawsuit, because like we were just talking about, we're still arguing over the same thing than where I've seen people come together and show Medicaid and show the Idaho legislature and show the Idaho governor and the Department of Health and Welfare that um, they have um, the collective power of the entire state um, in their connections with each other. And so, We've got to keep listening to people with disabilities tell us what they need rather than telling them how the system is going to operate on them. And uh, to hear that voice, uh, it'll be louder if we're doing it together. So I encourage people who are in this program, who are resonating with some of the things that Delray is saying, some of the things that Noel is saying, to get connected Um and you can certainly connect with, with me and with the KW lawsuit and the team that's working on that uh, in several ways. Uh, I encourage you to, to go to a website that we have for the case called ourhealthandwelfare.org, O-U-R, healthandwelfare.org. You can also just look up Our Health and Welfare Facebook, and you'll find there's a Facebook page too. And on those places, you can reach out, out to me and I can try to connect you with um, updates on the case and with others like Delray and Noel who have been a part of this uh, as, we've, as we've gone along. Well, what an absolutely fantastic way to end this conversation is focusing on um, creating stronger communities, um, communities that are tied together more because uh, you're right, that that is ultimately at the end of the day what what gets it done. And I think there's got to be a lot more of that. We've got to build a stronger and broader community in this state to move a lot of the issues forward that affect all of us and um, on the disability front on, and on so many other fronts. And I think that is that is certainly the lesson um, 
none of this would have been possible unless it was for a community that was created and and move forward. Delray, yes. Uh, you know, in I think it was 2012, I think Richie will correct me if it wasn't, when the state was going to cut back $124 million, is that right? Was it 2012? And we all went down to speak in front of JFAC. And I just, I, I wish people could think about this from this point when we're when we talk about disabilities, you know, Noel mentioned that, you know, sometimes it's cognitive, sometimes um, it's, you know, an illness. It could, it just could be many things. And when we spoke in front of JFAC, there was a farmer, there was a woman, she was 72 years old and um, she had failed to navigate. She had a load of sheep and she was going around a corner and um, it, the corner was too sharp and she had an accident and was paralyzed from the waist down. And at that, when we all went down to, to speak in front of JFAC, we all got three minutes to do, you know, tell our story and um, why it was so important not to have them cut that money out. And, and that's what, you know, she was really good when she spoke in front of the, the committee because she said, I'm just like one of you. This could happen to any of you tomorrow. Yeah. You could be in the same spot that I am. And I think that that's what we forget about, you know, like we, we forget that anything could happen to any, to your family, to, you know, any of, any of us, it can happen to any of us. And that's what we forget about. We forget about creating um, services and, and, being there for one another in a way when it's because it could be it could be any one of us at any time we don't know when that's going to happen mm -hmm. you know we just we we kind of go on about our lives but when she got up and spoke um it would just really hit me and and tr truly that day for me because i'm in a rural area when I was down there and that, I was a chocolate mess because every story was a Kyle story, you know what I mean? And your own story is so personal to you, but so is all of theirs, you know? Uh, it was it was very enlightening for me. And uh, I really appreciated the people that got up and spoke because a lot of them had really hard stories. and And it really, was an eye opener. I didn't, I didn't bring this young man up, but um, there was a young man and I don't know exactly what his disability was, but he'd had a seizure and he couldn't speak because of that seizure. And so he had someone talking for him and she said who she was. And, and at the time he was living in a certified family home and, um, and he said, you know, if you cut this budget, you're cutting certified family homes and he'd been a dish and, um, and she was talking for him and she said, I would rather, he, he, he had wrote this out, you know, and she's speaking and, and he said, I'd rather die than go back to ish. I was abused. I wasn't cared for. I had all these things happen to me. And so these programs are important. It's important that we get it right. It's just, it's just important that we get it right. And, and thank God we have the ACLU 
you know, working on this right now, because if we didn't, I shudder to think where, where we would be in the state right now. People wouldn't be getting, they wouldn't be getting the services that they need. I know it. My prayers are with you, Del Rey. God bless you. You too. <laughs> you as well, though. Well, I want to thank all three of you, um, Del Rey uh, from up north, Noel from down in southwest Idaho, and Richie uh, from right here in Boise. Uh, this is a really educational, uh, for me at least, conversation, um, learning more about this lawsuit and, how, and who it impacts and why and what we need to do. And I think that was a perfect way to end it. I don't know we can say much more than that. And uh, if you want to learn more information about uh, the KW lawsuit and these issues with the 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 H uh, home and community based services and the the DD waiver, uh, like Richie said, go to ourhealthandwelfare.org. That's o r uh, o u r healthandwelfare.org. Um, there's plenty of information there, and we'll link that to uh, the show notes as well. And you can reach out, I believe, to Ricky, uh, Richie directly if you've got questions or um, issues with this. And we're going to leave it there. And with that, um, thanks. And I'd, like, thanks I'd like to say thank you to Richie for inviting me to be on this platform. Yes. And it's been, it's been a blessing to have Richie Epping in my life. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Agreed. All right, folks. Well, we're going to leave it there. And as always, uh, stay independent, Idaho. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. Thanks, Noel. Thanks, Richie. Thank you.